from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and start in verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? That's a very interesting uh, way to begin here. Do we begin to commend ourselves? How would we do that? Well, we would do so with our own thoughts, and it wouldn't be God's one thought, and that's Christ. God's one thought is Christ. He's the one that has positionally put an end to all our struggles. Everything that we struggle about has been answered by God's one thought, that's Jesus Christ. So do we begin again? Do we go back to that again? Do we go back to ourselves in the midst of our struggle to try and figure it out or work our way out of it? Or need we, as some, these epistles, these letters of, condom, of, of commendation to you? Or letters of commendation from you? Do we need proof? Really, it's what he's saying. Do I need proof? Do you need proof? Or do I, do you need to get proof from me? Or do I need to get proof from you? No, the reason why is in Christ, all of us, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as you are manifestly declared, and this is true of every one of us in Christ, we are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ. Notice that? Such trust have we through Christ to God, to God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think. Notice that? Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything about self in a struggle, whatever that may be, to think anything as of ourselves. So in the struggle, in that struggle, is it a struggle? Is it the, the desire to go forward in Christ experientially? Or do we go back? And look for some kind of sufficiency in ourselves. No. No, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who has also made us able. Notice that he's given us this ability. The ability and the sufficiency that we have is is. In Christ, in us, not in ourselves, not apart from him. Even in the midst of the struggle. Is God for me in the struggle? Is he? In Romans 8, 31 and Psalm 56 and verse 9? Absolutely. Is he with me in the struggle? Without a doubt. Who also made us able, ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter. 
but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. You see, that's what the flesh does. In the midst of the struggle, trying to figure it out, or trying to take someone else's, what they're going through, and their struggles. If I try to take them onto myself, I replace Christ. Of course, I can't handle my own struggles, never mind someone else's. No, no, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, that's the flesh that tries to take the law or think things through with the scriptures apart from Christ. Yeah. For the letter kills, but the spirit, the spirit does what? The spirit, what? Imparts life to us. It imparts the very life of Christ. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, you see, this is the legality of the law. This is, in any circumstance, a situation, in myself or about someone else. Do I, am I to enter into other struggles? Or am I to enter into prayer for them? Am I in, am I in any way to enter into my own struggles? No. No, I'm, I'm to do what? I'm to depend upon him. You see? So the struggle just simply is, just reveals that we need to depend upon him and stop trying to think things through apart from Christ. But if the ministration of death, written and graven in stones, was glorious, and it was, it was still glorious. I mean, even the, the, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Hebrew Words in Exodus 20, 3 to 17, even those by themselves were glorious. But do they lose their glory when the flesh struggles with them and tries to do what those, even those ten Hebrew words say to do? No. Is Christ the end of the law in Romans 10 and verse 4? Yeah, Christ is the end of the law. You mean just the Ten Commandments? You mean that's all that Christ did on Calvary was, was end the Ten Commandments, fulfill the, the righteousness of them? No, he did far more than that. He did far, far more than just to do that. Far more. No, he's, he's done way more than that. No, he's done way more than fulfill it. He has become our very life. I want us to think about that. I thought this recently, that in the midst of any struggle, in the midst of the struggle, then God comes in and abundantly sheds pours his love on us in Romans 5, 5. It says without measure. He pours his love on us. Did we know that in every circumstance and situation that we're in, no matter what it is, no matter what the circumstance or situation is, is Christ in me any different? Has he who's in me not overcome already me and every circumstance or situation? You see, Romans 8, 31 to 39 brings it out clearly. So he brings the answer out, and the answer is his love for me, who's done all of these things for me. Far more than just than answering the law and doing away with it. No, he's done far more. That's why it says in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from what? The law of sin and death. But what the law could not do, 
And then it was brought out the weakness of the flesh, the inability of it. God sending his own son and by his son has brought us up to a place far above everything. Far above. Where is Christ? Where is he now? He is far above everything. Where are we positionally in him? Far above everything. So that we know that in these struggles, God comes in and he pours his love on us. <laughs> that just, that the enemy may mean those struggles to be for evil in Genesis 15 verse 20. God means it for good. What is the good? His love through his son that, uh, that has accomplished everything in propitiation, substitution, and reconciliation. He pours that love on us. Did we know that the measure of love that we need to fit the circumstance or situation or anything that comes against me is God's love. Now, when I think about God's love, does God peace out his love to me for each circumstance? No. I may not understand the fullness of his love, but that one area that I deeply need his love is all of his love <laughs> that he gives me. Even whether I, because God does not peace himself out. God is love, not sectioned love, not peace. I mean, God fills us with that love for that one little place. And that's the reason why we even love him. In 1 John 4.10, here in his love, here in his love. You trying to love God? Trying to do what's right? Here in his love. Not that we loved him. but that he loved us. This brings out the picture in Luke 10, 38 to 42, where there, uh, there is Martha, and Martha loved the Lord. She had an affectionate love for him. But what she was struggling with was that the love that she had somehow fell short of the love that he loved her with. And then she would compare herself. So that's why she was there trying to serve him where Mary was just seated at his feet, receiving that love life that does the serving without an ounce of struggle. So she was struggling, like, and we all we all do that in our growth. We do, but that's it, that's where he has to separate the thoughts that aren't from him, our thoughts, and mixing them with his thoughts. That's that's why we struggle. See, and of course he's interceding for us the whole time. By the way. Because he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Joshua 1.5, I will not fail you nor forsake you. Jesus said to his, his Jewish disciples to go out and preach. And then when they were to go and, and uh, be, begin the church with the Holy Spirit sent down, with Christ going away, we see that in Acts, the first chapter. So how do I read Matthew 28.18? It says, All power is given unto me. All power is given unto him. All the power that we need is in Christ in us. We need power, we can have it. We need it. We desire it. Because our desire is that desire that he's given us, whereby he meets that desire. In Psalm 37 and verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord who give you the desires of your heart. Then you roll all your care. That's the, what's the care? That's such a struggle. You roll it on him. And Psalm 37 and verse 5. Our steps are ordained in Psalm 37 and verse 23. And as a result, we never lack anything in Psalm 37 and verse 24. 
We don't lack a single thing. So our sufficiency here is, is what? Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think. You see? Thinking, looking at things by sight. Sight is our own understanding of things. And we can, because we're weak, and we can forget God instantly. But he never forgets us. Never. Then he brings us back to a place where we have the abundance of his love. And not that we have to, and not that we could, and not that we have to measure his love, because his love is immeasurable. You see that in Romans 11 and 33? His ways are past finding out. Go into 34 and 35 in that beautiful correlation. And we know in Ephesians 3 and verse 19, in terms of eternity, in terms of his eternity, his love passes knowledge. But each area where he makes known to us his love, that ends the struggle. And that love is not God peacing. It is all his love. All his love forever we're going to grow in. In every single area. And that's what we're doing down here. Those, those struggles, and even the enemy will use the struggles that he even may cause, be, be the cause of, and if we go by sight. Will even use those to accuse us. Sometimes he tries to use struggles, the enemy, in Romans 12, 9, to deceive us. And then sometimes when he can't, he'll, he'll use, try to use uh, my struggles and the struggles of others to accuse us. Fact of the matter is, who's our sufficiency? We are not sufficient. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves to think. Notice that? Notice that? We don't think outside God's full thought. God's one answer to everything is Christ. That's his one thought. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in Colossians 3 and verse 16. You see? And so he's bringing us to this place constantly of constant dependence upon his love. And that answers everything. Everything. Everything in that area that we receive his love, everything, as far as we can see in our finiteness, is in its proper place. And that's what his love does. You know, God's love sets us through his grace, everything in its proper place. And then to the next circumstance that we need to grow in and get to know him in. So all the circumstances and situations are, are planned by God for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And what is that? We're growing in that love that he has for us. We're not, th listen, our life is not here. <laughs> Sometimes we struggle because we're trying to make life be what we have here. And it's not. No, we're strangers and pilgrims in 1 Peter 2.11. We are on our way to our eternal place with Christ individually in, in Revelations 2 and verse 17, and corporately in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, but that is based upon our own individuality in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27. We're all particular members, and that 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, he's bringing out, and is brought out beautifully in eternal sense, which we're going to grow in eternally, is Revelations 2 and verse 17. We feast on that hidden manna. We feast on it. You see, and so no one but Christ can be our sufficiency. 
No one can be a, no, we don't depend upon, we don't depend upon the pastor to be our sufficiency. We don't do that. Christ is each individual sufficiency. And when that is, and when that takes place experientially, then we have fellowship in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Then we're one in our own individuality in John 17, 11, 21, and 22. And then that brings out the oneness even in that local assembly in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. But this is something that each of us individually must grow in. But here's the struggle, and it's brought out beautifully. Listen, can a man receive anything except it come from heaven? No. In John 3 and verse 27, no. But he must increase. <laughs> you see? But I must decrease. And so each struggle becomes this opportunity for me to decrease in my own thinking and to increase in, in, in the full thought of God which has to do with love and not another thing. And then that love, it casts out fear because fear is torment, we know, in First John 4 and verse 18. Fear has torment. Torment is the Greek word kolasis, K-O-L-A-S-I-S. And fear has torment. We're being punished. And oh, how the enemy, in the midst of the struggle, instead of going forward, in my thought again this morning in our growth, for me and my and God's counsel towards me. Listen, if I am not going forward, see the struggle is is what the enemy means for evil in Genesis 50 verse 20, God means for good. So the struggle is to impel me or to force me to go forward because if I don't, what do I do? I go back and I struggle with all the old things again. All the old ways of thinking and all the but see the old man positionally in Romans 6, 1 through 6 has been crucified. Look at we're already, listen, we're already a success. Each of us individually in Christ. He's the measure of our success. Has nothing to do with who, who we are outside of him. Not a single thing does it have to do. And he has made us, listen, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, because of that sufficiency and that supernatural ability that he is in us when we depend upon him, that that love life is released in us and then we have energy and out of that energy comes the purity of that light which we mix nothing with you see so the full thought of god that's why it says in john 1 and verse 5 that he's the light and that light came out and darkness did not overwhelm it in the midst of the struggle in the midst of ours and that's the message then the message of the pure fellowship that we have in the light of who christ is that brings us into this loving relationship. Again, this is brought out in 1 John 1, 1 through 3, enters into our own individuality, our own character, in 1 John 1, 7, is brought out in verse 5. Then this, this, then is the message. What is the message? This is the answer. What's the answer? What is it? What is that answer? To each of us. We'll see. Listen. Listen to what it is. And I'll read it here. Again, here. So that we can get this clarity. This is the message then. Which we have heard of him. What are we hearing of him? What, do we, uh, what are we to hear of him? Who he is in us individually. What is it? And what do we declare unto you? That God is light. And in him is what? 
No darkness at all. Let me say this. Is God struggling about a single thing? God struggle anything about, about who he is in his nature? No, he does not. Now we do in terms of our growth, in terms of growth, but it's just a separating, sanctifying process that's going on in us. And this is what it says, Ben. That is, now, if we say in 1 John 1, 6, that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, listen, walk in darkness, what is darkness? Struggling with our own thoughts apart from Christ. The full thought, the one answer to him. That's why it says in Philippians 4 and verse 19, my God, is he? Come on, is God our God? Is he? Is he not our all? My God will what? Will supply all your need according to his limitless riches and immeasurable glory by Christ Jesus. And that's why in Philippians 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which makes me extremely mighty, gives me dynamic power and energy. You see the energy again of God's nature is love. The purity of that nature is that light. And the purity of who Christ is has come out. He came out. When we received him, we got this brand new character in 1 John 1, 7. And that character here, that character is made us already more than conquerors in Romans 8 and verse 37. But the sheep have to be slaughtered, the self-life in Romans 8 and verse 36 and Psalm 44 and verse 22. That old self-life has to be experientially brought the cross brought in to separate us. The old thought, the old way of thinking, the old lines. That's why the psalmist said, the lines have fallen unto me. In Psalm 16 and verse 6, they fall out to me in pleasant places. They're places of rest. Is there a struggle about who we are in Christ? Never. When I am functioning in him, and he's pouring his love in and on and all around me, and I'm in his presence, is there a struggle? No, but we're growing in that. We're growing in it. And that's why, but if, but if we walk in the light, which is our true character, as he is in the light, the one who's given us that character, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, that sacrificial, that propitiation, substitution, and reconciliation of his son cleanses us from all sin. And this has happened already for us. So the beauty of that is this then, that in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3, but if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not even steadfastly look into the face of Moses. They couldn't even do that. Again, this is brought out. You'll see this in Exodus the 14th chapter starting there and then brought out in Exodus 34. I believe it's verse 29 and then on forward, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not even look at the face of Moses. Listen, for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How will not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation, the law that we couldn't fulfill was glorious, that none could, even when they asked for it, in Exodus 19 and verse 8, and Exodus 24 and verse 3, it says, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. And what is that? 
This is where we go to Romans, the fifth chapter. And all of this was ours and still is when our one thought of ours did not enter into it. You see? Not one thought of ours entered into everything that Christ has done, who he is and his person and what he's accomplished for us individually. This is Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, dependence, we have peace with God through and by our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is our being? What is our new being? What is our true image? We are justified. What's that? We are cleared of all guilt and condemnation. I am not to know myself after guilt and condemnation. And so there's where the struggle comes in. So, therefore, being justified, what's our new being? It's by faith dependence. We have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Not let us have, as some would interpret it. We have it because Christ is our peace. In Ephesians 2 and verse 14, and what does peace do? When there's a battle going on and the battle is over, what do we experience? We experience peace. You see, the struggle is the lack of the experiential knowledge about the peace that Christ is in us, Ephesians 2 and verse 14, won by him for us, having nothing to do with our thoughts, in Colossians 1 and verse 20, that, that, that death on the cross has ended the struggle. Positionally, now he's bringing that reality into us. And then that's why it says in Romans 5 and verse 2, by whom, through whom, and by whom also we have access, by this dependence, into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope, the guarantee, it's guaranteed, Colossians 1.27, guaranteed in Romans 8.18, in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we glory in tribulations also. Do you see someone going through something? Do you see them struggling? They are on their way to glory. Oh, yeah. That's all. And we don't take that upon them. We pray for them. We enter into it in prayer. And, we, and, and, and in compassion through Christ, we empathize. But we, we, leave those, we leave those burdens where they belong. We bring them to Christ. That's Acts 6, verse 4. We give ourselves to prayer. And so what does the pastor do? Does he take other struggles upon them himself? No, no. He gives himself to prayer. And when he does, he brings those and gives them to where they belong. Then God gives him the ministry of the word for them. But he has to give it to him first. In Acts 6, verse 4. Not only so, we glory in tribulations. What? Knowing. What do we know? How do we know anything outside of God's love? Again, knowing here, knowing here is Ephesians 3 and verse 19, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Knowing that tribulation works, what? Patience. What does patience have to do if it's not his love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4? And patience, what? Experience. Experience in who Christ is in you and who you are in him. And experience what? Brings in hope. Hope that, I hope so? No, hope that's a guarantee. Why? And hope 
This guarantee of this life that Christ is makes not what? Ashamed. And the enemy wants us to be ashamed of struggle. Why? He can't change our position. Sin doesn't even touch that. Although sin will interrupt my fellowship, but never my position in Christ. No, he wants to make us ashamed when we struggle. Because the love of God is poured out without measure in our hearts, our minds, by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. When did all this happen? Everything we're reading here in these first six verses, does that depend upon my thoughts to grow into who Christ is in me and who I am in him? I mean, everything that Christ did on the cross, that I participate in any way in that finished work in John 19.30. I didn't have a thing to do. The only thing I had to do with it was all my sins were put on him, where he crucified the old man, Romans 6, 1 through 6, made me brand new in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, made me brand spanking new. It's the only thing. I had no participation in that whatsoever. None whatsoever. When did all of this happen? When, all of this that God is bringing out. Sometimes we struggle with these things. Did I have anything to do with it? Did you and I? No. For when we were yet without strength. Listen. In the struggle, when we are without strength. When did, in due time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Those that don't think with him. Those that didn't even want anything to do with him. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, just maybe, for a good man, some would even dare to die. Really? Ultimately, none would, by the way. But God, look at, but God, separated from all of that. A good, a, a man thinking he's good, that he can recognize good, some good in man that's not of Christ. Listen, but God, it's separated from that. And this is what he has to do in, in this sanctification process. We have been set into him positionally. Now he's be working it out into our experience, separating that, us from that. So when you see, see those that are in Christ struggling, you pray for them. Pray for them. But effectual prayer is resting in him and depending on him. For God to bring in that word. Again, this is Acts 6 and verse 4. It also brings out in, in a different way, and we'll see it in a different time in First Peter, uh, in, uh, Peter chapter 5 in those first 10 verses. But here as we finish up this morning, but God, you see the separation? You see the contrast? You see the contrast? There has to be a separation before we actually see the contrast. There has to be that. There has to be a separation. You see, he must increase, but I must decrease in John 3 and verse 30. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were sinners, actively sinning, sinning, Christ died. Why? For us. That's his love. Romans 8 verse 31. God for us who against us. Much more, much more than being now. See what our being is? Being now clear, justified of all guilt and condemnation by his blood, his sacrifice, his life poured out. We will be saved from wrath, what? Through him. Do we, do 
Do we think that God is thinking in any terms towards us in wrath? Or, no. No. And wrath, by the way, it's holy wrath. But does he think that way towards us? Is there any wrath for us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, based upon John 3 and verse 36? No. That wrath doesn't abide on us because Christ was our substitute. And he ended it. Never mind. Yeah. Is there wrath? Of God towards people? Yes. Towards those in Christ? No. Does God think evil about anybody? Never. Not one person. There's no evil in him. Evil began and was found in Satan. God created Lucifer. He never created Satan. Never. God doesn't think evil towards us in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. He knows the thoughts that he thinks towards us, which are innumerable in the one thought that his son is. The thoughts of what? Peace and what? Not evil. So he's getting us out of that experientially into this peace that's ours based upon Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It's not let us have peace. We have peace. Then he makes sense. Some would teach that. Again, some so-called Greek scholars would teach this in Romans 5, 1 and 2. It says let us have. No, no. It doesn't make sense even in the context of what we're reading. We have it. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were active sinners, Christ died for us. You see, his love didn't have anything to do about my thought. It was his one thought, Jesus Christ. We think in the purity of this new nature that Christ is in us. And that's how we're to know one another. Much more than being now justified by his blood, his sacrificial life poured out, we will be saved from wrath through him. For if if and we were enemies, there's no question about it, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we will be continually delivered by his life. This brings into, again, our position in Christ, our image in Christ, our character in Christ in 1 John 1, 7. So he's making now, through sanctification process, our conduct to be equal to our character so that we no longer struggle. We never struggle about who we are when we function in God's love. And there's no fear. There is no fear in that love. No. And because as Christ is, so are we. Is Christ right now seated at the right hand of the Father? Is there any fear? Never. There is no fear in love. Because as he is, so are we in this world. In 1 John 4, 17. And, and love casts out fear because fear has what? Torment. There's a struggle going on. There's a torment. Is that from God? Not from God. Not from God. We never struggle about who we are. Sometimes we struggle because we know to do good, meaning submit to it, but we don't do it. And then we have sin. But even then, we read, is God still for us in Christ because it didn't have anything to do with what we did or what we didn't do? Again, this brings out Galatians 5 and verse 6 as we close this morning. It's, it doesn't have to do with circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not doing or not doing, but it's a faith, a dependence that expresses itself through a love that has dealt with every single thing about us. Every single thing about us. So we, we are not the measure of our struggles. <laughs> okay? 
And we don't know each other after struggles. You just know that when you see others, when you see yourself struggling, what is it? That God's bringing into a present reality an experience of his love. And that's what he's leading others to. It's not done. Listen, and then there's no, there's going forward constantly or there's going back. There's no neutrality. There's no neutral. We're either going forward or going back. But in the midst of the struggle, just know this. God wants us to know this, that he is interceding for us. There wouldn't be any going forward if he wasn't. He intercedes for us in Romans 8 and verse 34. You see, he's in heaven as our comforter. And this is why he said, another comforter I'm going to give you. See, because Christ at that moment, and still for us and for them, he was comforting them. He was the source of all their comfort in, in John 14, 16. But he said, I'm going to give you another comforter. It's the Spirit and, and Holy Spirit. So he's given us this comfort. In the midst of our struggle, we have a comforter in heaven, Christ, interceding for us, pleading our case constantly. Not trying to gain our acceptance, but the constant answer for us. The constant answer. It's Romans 8.34. He's given us the Holy Spirit in the midst of our struggle. Even in our struggle, when we don't even know how to pray, the Holy Spirit knows how to take it and interpret it and bring it to the Father. But it's through Christ, you see, that the Father knows us and understands us in Christ. And that's why we understand who we are in Christ. And when we do, we have a loving Father. But he's given us the Holy Spirit in us on this earth. In Romans 8, verse 26. In Hebrews 7, verse 25, he ever lives to make intercession. He's ever living. He's our ever living life interceding for us. In Hebrews 7, 25, and in Hebrews 9, verse 24. The constant separating. You'll see that Hebrews 9, 24, right through uh, to verse 26. And down to 28. And so, Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful truth that is ours. I thank you, Lord, that when we, Christ is our sufficiency and we're, we're continuing to go forward, to go forward, Lord, so that we don't go back to the old way of thinking and thinking that the normal Christian life is struggling with who we are in the flesh. No, there's nothing that's normal, nothing that's supernatural about that. Thank you that we're already complete. Look at We're already complete. When you and I see another believer, when we struggle, or another, we see another believer struggle, are they already complete? Is Christ already completed everything about who God is and who they are in him? Has that been completed? Colossians 2.10 brings it out. You and I are filled up with all that God is right now. Right now. It's not something we have to do. It's something we continually receive. And Father, thank you for this truth. And may we all, and we will, we'll have new circumstances and new situations to grow in this present reality, this eternal reality, this immutable, unchangeable reality about who Christ is in us and who we are in him. We have so much to be thankful for. We do in Ephesians 5.20. Be thankful for all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Be thankful in all things. And we can because of the love that, that is ours and made, made ours in Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.